0: Talking about chicken a la king, mango and garbanzo, tabbouleh, potatoes and vegetables with roasted garlic and basil, zucchini ziti, granola, fruit bar, yeah. look at all this beautiful food. Mm. Hello, I'm Dan Dute. Welcome to Green Eggs and Dan. Like many of you, I'm stuck at home during this pandemic, and so are most of my guests.
1: I wanted to ask you, if you know where I can get Persian groceries in New York?
0: That leaves me with a crappy laptop from 2012, my own mic, and my fingers crossed, hoping my guests are able to record their half of the conversation, too. Um, I'm going to start recording, and we'll just get right into it. Is that cool?
1: Thanks for having me on, Dan.
0: Bear with us. Look at all this beautiful food. Guys, dreams do come true and the fact that my guest is on the podcast today is testament to that. She is an author, actor, model, and television host. She is the Emmy-nominated host of the best and longest-running food competition show in history, I believe, Top Chef. And she's also the creator and host of her new show and one of my new favorite TV shows in a long time, Taste the Nation, where she explores the food cultures of immigrant communities in our diverse nation. Please welcome Padma Lakshmi.
1: Hello, Dan. How are you?
0: Good, Padma. Um, I'm so happy to have you here. So we met briefly at Michelle Buteau's show that we did together. And shortly thereafter, you agreed to be on the podcast, which I'm So stoked about because you were telling me about this new show that was coming out. And I'm telling you, it is it is such a hit. I know Hulu doesn't give you ratings, but like you can tell this show is a hit. It is in the zeitgeist.
1: I'm so glad I wish they did give me numbers because I don't really know how to measure myself by anything other than like comments on Instagram. You
0: know? <laughs> I know, can I tell you how I measure stuff? Like uh, as a comic, this is how we know you have a hit. When someone does a show and we're like, oh man, why didn't I think of that? That's how you know you got a hit.
1: <laughs> okay, cool, I'll <laughs> and take it. I feel it.
0: like a lot of people in the food world are like, oh man, this is such a great idea. It's such a simple idea. I don't know why it hasn't been done before. And that to me is like, and honestly, I think the reason is because there wasn't the right host and you're the perfect host for the show. Thank you. Uh, I do want to get into your fridge. You guys can see Padma's fridge on my Instagram at standupdan. And here we go. Padma, I would expect nothing less than this fridge. This oh my is...
1: God. It's really frightening to see it in, in a picture for him. Like I look it's... at my fridge 15 times a day, but it's weird.
0: <laughs> it's uh, you're le- It's like, I feel like it's like letting people into your underwear drawer. Like when I, when people totally. see my fridge.
1: fridge or my spice drawers are more interesting than my indoor
0: drawer, I'm sure. I mean, this is this is one of the best fridges we've had on the show, and um, I want to get right into it. I've done a little bit of uh, of snooping around here. It seems like you are a tamarind addict. There's tamarind in like three different places here, mm-hmm. and I think you even have some tamarind. I don't know if this is tamarind or not, but I found something in your side door here. That is it looks tamarind. Like it says tamarind.
1: <laughs> that is tamarind. That is pressed tamarind. Yeah, one. The others are concentrate. One is concentrate. The second bottle was uh, something that you can mix, you know, with rice, and that's from the Hindu temple in Queens.
0: Oh, fantastic! So
1: there's also some tamarind chutney. The label is
0: is turned, but on,
1: in the door you can see.
0: Really, what is it about tamarind? Are you just into super sour flavors?
1: I am into. I love sour, I love tart, I love acid. Tamarind is something that all South Indians have grown up with. It's also very prevalent in Thai, Chinese, a lot of Southeast Asian um food, but it's really really big in South India.
0: Yeah. I I also I also it's also big in Persian cuisine, which we're going to get to, uh, you know, I just I've been binging your your show and I just watched the Iran episode last night, which I'm Iranian, so it was I mean you you knocked it out of the park. There was no way you could have done that that episode any better. Um, Thank you. And, actually, and everyone in the Persian community is like, I'm getting all the, like, my parents are sending me the link, which is like, that's how I know it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> making. They're like, do you know this show? I'm like, yeah, we're, we're talking tomorrow. I know this show. Danny um, June. Danny June, you know this lady? You also, I love that you have a prominent dairy presence in the fridge. Dairy seems like the devil lately. <laughs>
1: We we I love dairy. You know, I am. It would probably be easier for me to go without meat than dairy. Wow! So behind that whole milk, there's also lactate milk, so that I don't overdo it. But I yogurt. I eat a lot of butter. I eat cottage cheese, and you know, look, you can see. I we love our yogurt, both salty and sweet.
0: Are you a are you a ghee person? Do you ghee it up?
1: I do have ghee, but we don't keep it in the fridge. We keep it on the counter, actually.
0: Oh, does it not have to be refrigerated? No. I guess so. They take the milk solids out, so why not?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how fast you go through the bottle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you're cooking all the time, I can tell. Like, this is what is this funky thing over here? Oh, my God. That
1: is kumquat chutney. And the recipe for that kumquat chutney is actually in my memoir which is called love loss and what we ate it doesn't have too many recipes that book obviously it's a book of nonfiction prose but this recipe is one of my favorite recipes and it's actually the opening of the book like not the recipe but the story behind it my parents have um, kumquat trees in california where they live and so every winter they will send it to me and um you know that's what that is made that's homemade that was made in february and we had several jars of it that jar that you say that you're seeing right there is very precious because it is the very last jar
0: oh wow that's you know i never know what to do with kumquats so that sounds like an exciting thing can you explain what the difference is between a chutney and a pickle
1: Basically, it's the amount that you can consume. Uh, a pickle, which is very spicy and can be made from a variety of things, is usually much saltier. We're just having this conversation at lunch. And you usually only use a tiny bit, like you know, maybe um, a heaping espresso spoonful or half a teaspoon. And you take a tiny, tiny dot of it, and then you take your rice and whatever lentils or else you're eating. What I will do sometimes is smear that pickle on um, some flatbread and uh-huh. then put cheese, any kind of cheese on there and then roll it up and have it. That's a beautiful late night snack for me. A chutney is something that you usually use uh, by the tablespoon, a couple of tablespoons. So that can be a fresh chutney. It can be a cooked chutney. It can be um, almost like a coulis or, you know, what, you, like chopped very small. It can also be fermented, but usually they're blended and then they're, you know, they're they're dressed with spices that are fried. Right. But in some cases you cook the whole chutney.
0: It's interesting. I feel like um, I love Persian pickles, which I think you had some in your with the kebabs. Uh, in your I episode. love pickles.
1: Yeah. Pers- yeah. Persian pickles are
0: great. Persian pickles are great. But there's something about Indian pickles. I just discovered this brand called Nirav. Mm -hmm. And they make a, it's called Extra Spicy Mango Pickle. And like, you can can only get it in like this, there's like this website. It's like Indiansupermarket.com. It's like super immigranty website. Like it was like, just send a picture of your credit card and we'll send it to you. And you're like, oh, this seems shady, but I I need the pickles. (laughs) (laughs) They are the most delicious pickles. Like in the, like you guys, you guys nailed pickles. I'll give you that
1: thank you you know another thing you can do if you if you buy an indian pickle and you don't know what to do with it i always take a little bit and i swirl it with mayonnaise and then i use that Uh, To make potato salad or, you know, whatever salad you're making to just give it a little spice.
0: Yeah. Amazing. What is this like VIP Tabasco here that's like black? I've never seen this.
1: I don't know if it was just made for me, but it's a very limited edition um, (laughs) of Tabasco that the McKinley company sent me. I'm not sure why it just showed up. I don't even know how they got my address, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it showed up at the office and I came in a beautiful box and I love Tabasco. I, you know, I love all hot sauces. So if you move down toward the right, right next to the Priya pickle, no, the same, the same row okay. that is a hot sauce that was this given one? to me by Ed Lee from top chef. Oh, cool. Yeah, in Kentucky. Next to that is some Hawaiian chili water with a yellow top. You can see there's some weird black truffle uh, mustard, which I I haven't used much of. It's like completely full.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the condiments here are like insane. I love it. But this Tabasco thing is hilarious. It looks like a bottle of Dom Perignon. That's, (laughs) God. It is. (laughs) It's very cool. Okay, I want to get into your show now because I have a lot to ask you about. So I watched three episodes so far, and I think they're actually three perfect episodes to have watched. I watched the first episode, which is El Paso, and that explores the Mexican community, the Mexican-American community there. I watched uh, the second episode, which is Frankfurters um, in the Midwest, hot dogs. And then I watched the Iran episode. Now, I'm always kind of confused about how to view... America's role in immigrant food, okay? Because the Frankfurter is, by all means, is probably the the most uh, uh, integrated immigrant food ever, to the point where most people don't even know where it came from, right? And then you've got everything in between, like everyone's probably gone to a Thai restaurant, everyone's probably gone to a Chinese restaurant, everyone's probably gone to Mexican, no one's been to a Persian restaurant. So Persians have had probably the hardest time integrating their food so but my question is like what is the goal like is the goal to be like the frankfurter where you get to a point where people almost forget where it came from or is the goal to maintain enough integrity or you know i guess uh, ownership over it where it doesn't get lost in the shuffle
1: I mean, I think the best thing you can do with information or knowledge or expertise is to share it. If you really, really love your culture and you love your cuisine, you want people to make it. You you know, nobody ever cooks Indian food for me, obviously, but I wish they would, you know, outside yeah. of my family. I mean, I love Persian food. I think that Persian food is the most underrated food happening right now in this country. Great. It's so Sophisticated. It is so delicious and it's very healthy, you know, except for a lot of the butter that you use sometimes in the tadig or whatever. But, you know, if you compare it to other cuisines, I think it has mass appeal and it has a lot of souring agents, you know, sour plum and pomegranate molasses and, and, and tamarind and all these things. And so I love Persian food. I find it very vegetable forward. I, they're the only ones. Outside of Indians, in my humble opinion, that really know what they're doing with rice. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. I, you know, I feel that way. Um, (laughs) And and I think they also have beautiful breads like Sangek bread, you know, made on hot stones. I mean, how glamorous can that be? Yeah. And I also love the use of a lot of fresh herbs. Fresh herbs are so vital to Iranian food, you know, dill, parsley, mint, on and on and on. And a lot of like that Persian basil is something that I wish I could gift a bouquet of to all of my friends because it's so beautiful. It's not like Thai basil. It's not like Italian basil. It's just fresh and floral, but it does have an undercurrent of, of sort of grassy tartness, you know?
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: And. And I think the reason that more people don't know about Persian food is really a publicity problem because of the, you know, animosity between America and Iran for, you know, pretty much all of our lives. Like, you know, since 1979 anyway. And so Persians, you know, have really suffered in this country because they've been misrepresented and misconstrued. And nobody stops to think that, you know, the Persians who have come here with their families to settle probably also don't agree with the fundamentalist regime back in Iran. If they did, they'd be there. Right. Right, Exactly. (laughs) Also, you guys get, you know, lumped in with the Arabs and Iranian culture and Arab culture is totally different. You know, obviously some of the names are similar because, you know, many of both communities are are Muslim. But, you know, Persian culture is ancient and deep. And, and, you know, it's completely different than a Bedouin culture, say, or, you know, some other countries of the Levant, like, right. you know, Palestine or Lebanon or, you know, Jordan, Syria, name what you want. But after 9-11, you know, we were all lumped in. All the brown people who yeah. were in Mexico <laughs> were, like, lumped into, you know, Indians and Sikhs as well.
0: Right, were right, were all right.
1: lumped into one group. And even my cousins, you know, all of a sudden had a really hard time at the airport. And it's just it's just the bad luck of, you know, Americans for the most part, not all of them, you know, but in general, the news only having time for the headlines and not really uh, giving coverage to a lot of the nuances that exist to um, many of these complex issues.
0: I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm with you 100%. And I will say, though, there has been an evolution in taste in America. And I feel like I honestly, I, I attributed a lot of it to the Top Chef effect. I feel like people started watching Top Chef and being like, oh, this is cool. There's interesting food from other cultures that we can try. Like you guys brought like fine dining to the masses in a way and kind of created that like food curiosity for everyone. And I think that that thing that I went through when I was a kid and you went through when you were a kid and a lot of, of the people on your show went through as a kid of like, you know, opening my, you know, boiled chicken feet at the lunch table, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, or my warmest sabzi, like the and this, that smell of fenugreek just like filling the cafeteria and being made fun of. I don't know that. It, I, I mean, I wonder if it happens to the extent because I feel like people are like very excited about new cultures foods now than they ever were. And, you know, again, you guys, David Chang, all these people that have kind of brought these flavors and, and, and translated them in a way that's understandable have, have made it sort of like a gateway drug for people to experience these other cultures.
1: I think the world or the American food culture is very expansive and has become very expansive. You know, one of the reasons for that is definitely the internet and social media, but, and and media in general, like television or whatever. But another reason is the immigrant population. Like we all, even if we're not Korean, we've all had, you know, a colleague who's Korean or a college roommate who's Korean. You know, we've been exposed to it or, you know, somebody else, some friend talks about kimchi and Korean barbecue. And there we are, you know, and the same for all these other ethnicities. So it is better. But I think where children are concerned in elementary school or junior high school, where all of those, you know, formative experiences happen that are cringeworthy for all of us.
0: Right, right, right.
1: and I understand what you're saying about gourmet sabzi because it's the same thing. Just pick any curry you want, you know, right. over rice. It's not a very photogenic food Indian cuisine.
0: <laughs> no, 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 not at all.
1: <laughs> you know, so I think I'm sure it still happens. It's funny because my daughter, you know, because of that, I'm hypersensitive. My daughter's now on the meal plan at school. But at first, you know, I would pack her lunch and her teacher would email me and say, can I have the recipe for that pomegranate salad that I saw Krishna eating out of her lunchbox? Um, because it just looks so good. And so Krishna's lunchbox is now the envy of all her classmates because I was going to be damned if she was going to be shamed for her lunchbox.
0: Love it. I can't imagine. I, you should take pictures of all of the food that you make for her. I'm sure it looks <laughs> insane. Here's the thing, though I feel like, I always feel like it's an interesting conversation when it comes to cultural appropriation and food. Because I feel like food is the one place where, I don't know if cultural appropriation is the right word for it because it has such a negative connotation, but I feel like you can never kind of go wrong when you're experimenting and trying to innovate with other cultures' stuff. And regardless of what color you are or what your your heritage is, I feel like, it. I, I don't know, I feel like that's what makes American food so great. American food, quote unquote, is that, We take all these culture stuff, we borrow from them, we mix and match them. We're not like Italy where it's like, no, for thousands of years, you have to do it this way or you're going to get excommunicated from the village. We're like all about innovating and like trying new things. And let's throw this around and see how this works. You know, I'm curious what you feel about that, because it's like, I don't know. It's like, should I feel weird if there's a a restaurant in L.A. called Taco Window? That's these two French guys from France making the most unbelievable tacos in L.A is that wrong? Should that be weird? Like, I I feel like, I don't know. I feel like no. I feel like everything goes when it comes to food. And, and it's just tasted the most subjective thing that shouldn't necessarily have to do with the hands that it came out of.
1: I think it's really cool to beg, borrow, and steal all the ingredients you find delicious and interesting from other heritages or other cuisines and and incorporate them into your own. I have spent a career doing that, frankly. But here's where it gets tricky. If you're someone in the professional food media, and you use pomegranate molasses and saffron in a dish, or fenugreek, or um, I don't know, turmeric, what, you know, pick any lovely ingredient you want. Mm-hmm. And you write a recipe using that ingredient, and you don't for even a sentence or two in the head note to that recipe, say, listen, pomegranate molasses is a beautiful ingredient that is very uh, common and rooted in Persian cuisine. I first had it at X, Y, and Z, and I'm in love with this ingredient. And now I put it, you know, in my yogurt in the morning or in my salad dressing with olive oil. Like that's all you have to do. You just have to give credit. Where credit is due, mm. because the problem comes when you know you read magazines or newspaper websites about food, and it's always a white chef, many times male, but always white, doing this stuff. Mm. You know, and it's like it would really be nice for a Persian person to speak about pomegranate molasses and and, sh- and you know have Samim Nosrat show us how to use saffron. It would really, really be nice for someone from that community to get the airtime that our white colleagues get. Mm -hmm. Because context is important. Origin is important. The problem is when you don't do that, you are effectively erasing somebody else's heritage. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're creating a new um, or trying to create a new American pantheon that has room for Chipotle and Sriracha. But we need to know that Chipotle was brought here by Mexicans. We need to know, and in some cases, not even brought here because the border crossed them, right? right they didn't right. cross the And we need to know that stuff, A, because it's interesting, B, because it gives credit where it's due, and three, because it indicates how complex and diverse and, and really lovely our culture is. To me, the reason that American culture is so pop culture, music, literature, sports, whatever food is so dominant of a world force is because of the waves and generations of immigrants who have come here. And contributed to that collective history, to that collective coolness. You know, these aren't, these aren't, this just didn't come out of the blue from white people. And that's, that's my point. You know, and that's really what Taste the Nation is about. It's about finally giving the microphone to the origins of these ingredients and dishes that we love. Like we all love Thai takeout. But what do we really know about the Thai community here? Well, they've been here a long time. A lot of them came here because they married GIs during the Vietnam War. In fact, the US Army had a huge base in Thailand and they are big allies. And all of those war brides came here and had kids and actually their in-laws who were these white Midwesterners Welcome them with open arms, adopted their daughters-in-law. And we need to hear about that too. We need to hear that America has this beautiful legacy of really welcoming everyone because we're confident, because we are a great nation. And mm-hmm. we're not great in spite of immigration, we're great because of it.
0: Padma 2020, everybody. <laughs> oh my God, preach. Everyone clap in your cars and <laughs> you're listening to this. <laughs> All right, Padma, I'm going to get to the questions that I ask every guest uh, towards the end of the podcast, starting with what is your earliest food memory?
1: Well, you mentioned pickles, and it's actually that I was always wanting really spicy, really sour food, even when I was a toddler. And I, when everyone was sleeping in the afternoon, because it's so hot in South India, I was climbing up my grandmother's shelves in her kitchen and pantry, trying to reach for those bottles of pickles and i remember one time you know going up there and and then hanging there and taking a you know just a jar of the pickles out that i wanted and they were greasy because the oil had spilled out and i remember it slipping and almost falling and at the last minute catching myself like a monkey you know on a shelf right. and um and there was glass and oil and chili and mango everywhere and i just hung there suspended and my aunt came in and saved me. And so from then on, they started locking the pantry with the padlock.
0: Oh, no. That should be like, if you became like the pickle queen, that would be like your origin story.
1: <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly.
0: What is your death row meal?
1: You know, my death row meal changes a lot. It depends. I go through moods. Sometimes, um... I want pizza from this local pizzeria in the, in the village called Spunto. It's really mm. super thin crust. It's the perfect marriage of New York sliced pizza with you know Roman pizza, which is different from Neapolitan pizza. It's much thinner. That's one with jalapenos and a balsamic onion reduction. Um, yeah, it's pretty developed my sense of how much I love that pizza. So if you're ever in New York, order that pizza. They have like Different uh, locations, but Spunto, Veto, Grupo—they're But I also like—I love nachos, and I don't mean like highfalutin nachos. I mean like down and greasy nachos, basic B
0: nachos have- with the with the with the nacho cheese that comes out of the spoon, the little push button thing.
1: <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to eat those all the time. I mean, I've now graduated to actual real cheese, but there is a soft spot in my heart for that kind of. You know, orange sludge with the marinated pickled jalapeno. <laughs> I
0: love it. Oh, my God. That's so charming that your death row meal is pizza and nachos. They're going to be like, we're not going to execute you, Padma. That is so cute. <laughs> 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 okay, I'm excited about this one. What is the best high-end meal that you've ever had?
1: It was in October of 2010. It was in Copenhagen at NOMA.
0: Mm -hmm. And I've
1: only been there once. And since then I made friends with Renee Redzepi, but, I wanted to go and eat his food because I'd been hearing about it. And the real reason I went to Europe on that trip was actually to go to El Bulli because I read in the Times that it was going to close. Right. And so, you know, we we're actually headed to El Bulli, And then since we were going to Europe, we we're like, we can't just go to Europe for one meal. So we'll go for two. Yeah. Um, so Noma and El Bulli happened literally one night after the other. Oh, my God. The- El Bulli was such an experience. I had 50 courses. I got to go back in the kitchen and meet their whole staff. But Noma was only seven courses and it was exquisite. It was really like a boy's love letter to to the forest in Mm. which he grew up. The dishes were so imaginative, but they were really still homey and really flavorful. In fact, I actually demanded that they give me a container of their butter. To take home mm. and I don't, they actually get it from Sweden you know across the water there but um is there water yeah there must be yeah um, but you know, like all of a sudden I'm like doubting Like <laughs> there's a river but,
0: there's a river or something but,
1: but it was delicious and I'll never forget that meal um you know the first thing that came was like a flower pot I'm sure you've seen read about it it's like really thick yogurt and then a two-year-old carrot and then the dirt is actually salted malt powder and then there are snails and edible flowers in that plant and oh, you're wow. supposed to eat the whole thing you're supposed to eat the snails you're supposed to eat the carrot you're supposed to dip the carrot in the yogurt underneath the malt dirt i mean that was just one course it's wow. so imaginative and so delicious
0: were there ants did you get any ants
1: I didn't have the ants when I went, but I've read about the ants. You know, that's a big one. I also had one where they were like smoked hay on a really hot rock. Yeah. You cracked the egg yourself and it cooked. Um, I had that one. It was just all beautiful, honestly. But I would have been happy with just the bread and butter they served. (laughs) So superior.
0: The best. Yeah, there's nothing, which brings me to the next question, because I do think there's nothing better than bread and butter. But what is the best low end meal that you've ever had? Like could be a street food, could be.
1: I think this, you know, I'm not Christian, but I'm a you know, Christmas fundamentalist. And so it's it's the best part of American culture. And so when I grew up in New York City, you know, we didn't have so much money to splurge. But my mom would take me to Rockefeller Center and, you know, she wouldn't skate with me, but she would let me skate and watch me skate. And while I was doing that, she would have ready for me a paper bag full of roasted chestnuts that were really, really roasty and cracked that were made out of like a basically like a tin drum that was hollowed out and a wok put into it.
0: Yeah, Um, the, the the New York, the ones on the street in New York.
1: Yeah. So that always makes me think of my childhood in New York.
0: I love it. Do you have a favorite drunk food?
1: I have a favorite drunk food. No, all food is great drunk. Yeah. I don't don't know how to answer that, but um, yeah, I just like food. So when I'm drunk, I like it even more.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Maybe like, Maybe something that doesn't have substance, like a cotton candy, wouldn't really hit the spot. But I could, uh, I could get down with about everything. No, you're like, no, I want cotton candy. I need it.
1: It's actually, it's one of the healthier treats that you can have because it's so spun so fine. It's only a teaspoon
0: of sugar. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Padma's new cotton candy diet. You can eat all the kind of cotton candy you want. Just put some uh, uh, tamarind on top, and you'll be fine. Do you have a favorite uh, hangover food?
1: Yes, I do. There is a deli on Thirty Fourth and Park where I used to live. I don't even know if it's still there, but they would make. I would always get this in the morning. I would get a BLT on a toasted English muffin with fried egg, mustard, and hot sauce.
0: Ooh, yes, yeah. The New York, the New York deli, like egg and cheese, is probably my favorite drunk food or hangover food as well. It's the best. <laughs> I mean,
1: when i though, I live right by the village, so you know, I live really close to NYU. So I do like the shawarma. There's a shawarma truck that parks by the Dwayne Reed over there. Um, yeah. Grew- so, <laughs> you know, you're getting all my like secret spots, but um, I love it. They that shawarma truck is really great because it's really fresh, and I I can always I can smell whether the oil is fresh um, before I even taste anything.
0: Beyond on your game, Shawarma, guys. I'm looking at you, yeah. Mamoons. <laughs> I, I went to Mamouns. When I went to Mamoon's sober once, I was like, oh, this is very different from when I usually have it. It
1: tastes
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little I agree. Do people lose their shit when you walk into their restaurants and then get nervous and then, like, mess up the food?
1: No, no, they don't. I mean, it depends where we go, but... You know, if it's a really nice restaurant, then my friends will use my name to get us in there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the one thing I can do is get a table yeah. usually you know, when I want to. But, um, I, you know, they don't like sometimes it's hard because they want to be nice to me and they, you know, I order whatever I order and then they you know, send out all these little presents from the chef. Yeah, And then before you know it, I've got like 18 dishes and I really feel badly because I, there's no way I could clean all those plates, even with my friends or family. Um, right. So I sometimes like I'll just push the food around to make it look like I ate, like, you know, with <laughs> like, I, you know, I love it. I love what I do and I'm naturally curious about food. So I'm always happy to try. I'll, I'll wear or try anything once. Yeah, you know, that's my <laughs>
0: I'm with you. I love it. The, who is your favorite celebrity food personality other than Padma Lakshmi?
1: Whoa, that's a hard one. Um, I I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of my friend Eric Repair. I think yeah. he's very humble, and he could have a huge empire, but you know what he does is so special at La I mean, He does have, I think, something in the Cayman Islands and maybe one in D.C., but he's so he's so knowledgeable and he's so humble and he's so fun to be with and and he laughs easily. And I, you know, we don't get to spend that much time together, but we've known each other for 20 years almost. And it's always a pleasure when he comes to the show. Um, You know, I know his family, we've known each other for so long I think I would say him. I think he's a safe person to say without making any of my friends mad.
0: (laughs) He does seem like the nicest guy in the world and it does not seem like an act either.
1: He's so nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one time, like, I really, when I first started, um, you know, being on TV and stuff, I was really nervous because when I would, they would always ask me to go on the Today Show and, and, you know, do a cooking segment and it terrified me. Mm. And I, I, I told him this, you know, and he said, why? he said, why are you so scared? I said, because I'm not a chef and I'm scared to chop. Like I can't chop like you guys, you know, I'm a home cook. I write cookbooks. And he said, it's nothing. He said, why don't you come to my restaurant? And he literally like, he let me into his kitchen and he said, I'm not gonna do it because I don't want you to be embarrassed in front of me. Cause you know, we're friends. He had a woman named Soa. Thank you, Soa, who gave me literally like a knife skills
0: class. Oh, my God.
1: And and taught me how to, you know, be comfortable and and cut vegetables, you know, like a chef. I still can't do it like they do, but it's better now, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That is so cool. Oh, Eric, we love you. Do you have a food that you can't stand eating? What do you hate? What do you hate, Padma? Stop being so nice. What do you hate?
1: I fucking hate tripe and offal. Really? Um, yes. Yeah, oh, I don't Padma. like organ meat. I don't like any organ meat. I don't want to eat tongue. I don't want to eat stomach. I don't oh, want
0: to eat... no. I I'm... love
1: pate, but I don't like foie gras.
0: Really? It's usually the other way around.
1: No, it's really funny because somebody gave me a whole lobe of foie gras from D'Artagnan. I don't know how to say that. D'Artagnan. Yeah, D'Artagnan. And um, it's still sitting in my freezer.
0: (laughs) I think it's illegal now. You can sell it in the black market.
1: That's right. There we go.
0: (laughs) Padma's breaking the law, guys. We got her. This has all been a sting operation to get your foie gras. That is so crazy, Padma. Oh, man. I feel like you've broken my my beautiful veneer of you, that there's nothing wrong with you.
1: Uh. Well, you the thing is, I grew up a vegetarian because I'm Hindu. And so we always ate dairy, right? I'm a lacto-vegetarian. So like you couldn't even bring any meat, like you couldn't even bring a chicken sandwich into my grandmother's house. That is still the case. So no eggs, nothing, just milk and cheese. So I didn't start eating meat until I was a teenager, really. So I'm still very squeamish about... You know that kind of stuff. Like, I, yeah. I'm not good teacher. I don't know how to break down a side of beef. You know, I don't. Like, when would I have had the occasion to anyway? But um, you know, I think those are skills that that everybody should know how to do if you're going to eat meat. So I'm working on it.
0: <laughs> Look, I'm with. I, I do think also there's this problem of like, I think people don't cook those ingredients with enough love and those need a lot of love to come out good like i feel like most tripe like the tripe that i've had like vietnamese tripe or chinese tripe is just too funky for me but like italian tripe they like cook it for like five hours and like you know it, it it's a little more palatable i don't know i'm I, i'm gonna try to turn you around on this do you have a this is this is my favorite question uh what is your restaurant pet peeve
1: Oh, my restaurant, Pet Pig, this is something that happens because it's me. I either, like, I either get serviced to death. Yeah. Where, you know, all of a sudden, like every, they have to come to the table and ask me how things are before I've even had a chance to blow on my spoon to taste the first bite. You know, like there's a pretentiousness in some restaurants that I think is now really falling, you know, out of fashion. But, you know, it came up with the Nouvelle Cuisine and it was sort of this like punctilious, you know, pepper grinders that were like two feet long. And it's like, are you trying to compensate for something? You know? <laughs> But um, that or the opposite, where you're like, hello. Yeah. Hello. You know? Yeah. So I just think those two um, extremes are, are annoying. Neither is good. And I think that's why we go out. I mean, we go out to have beautiful service and be waited on. And so having the emotional intelligence to know how to temper what that person needs in your service mm. is really Important. That's why, like, I love when I go to Europe and waiters are actually waiters. Like, that's their profession, you know. Yeah. And they're paid well. They don't have to, like, you know, rely on tips or whatever. So they're just like cool and they know their shit. They know their food. They know everything. And if you go there a lot, they know what customers need to sit by the air conditioning and what customers don't. They know Absolutely. what customers who like, drink a lot of water, stuff like that.
0: They're not working on their lines in the bathroom in between service.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Last question, Padma. What is the first restaurant that you will go to after lockdown?
1: Indochine. Really? Yeah, I love Indochine. It's so, like, it's old school for me. Yeah. Because, you know, the room is beautiful and the food is pretty healthy if you don't get the ribs and spicy, you know? So I love all the steamed fish and banana leaves you know, they used to have a lotus salad, which they took off the menu, which I'm lobbying to get back. Really easy. <laughs> like I all, I know all of the menu. Like I want number twenty nine, which is you know, which is used to be the chicken breast, now it's something else. But like I've been going to Indochine since nineteen
0: ninety four. Wow. <laughs> Wait, did it used to be in midtown and then it went downtown or it was always downtown?
1: They used to have a branch in midtown. You're thinking of Le Colonial.
0: Yes. Okay, wait. So I think it's funny that you said unless you get the ribs, because I think I had beef short ribs there for the first time ever. Is that possible?
1: It is possible. Sure. I mean, they, they have, they're they fantastic. But um, yeah. that I just like that room. I had my 40th birthday there. I've gone to a lot of parties there. I remember when I first went there, I got really giddy because I, I saw Iman and David Bowie in another booth. And this was before oh. I became friends um, with How them, cool. and, you know, like it was just, for me, it 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 had this kind of savoir faire of being like glamorous New York downtown. And so I, I'm very emotionally attached to that restaurant. Also, it's walking distance from my house, which is always good.
0: You know, it's funny. I think that we go back to, that res- to the restaurant that kind of gives us that nostalgia of what things used to be like. Like for me, I would want like a raucous night at Balthazar. I don't go to Balthazar anymore. I haven't been in a long time. But like, I just remember that, first time of being in that room and like that energy and I just miss being around people and you know so I feel like you always kind of go back to that
1: yeah I mean I I it's been years since I've been to Balthazar at night but I know what you mean when it first opened it was like such the place to be and it's a huge restaurant so it's kind of theater right yeah. um but I go there once in a while now again because it's here in the neighborhood for brunch on Saturday or Sunday um because Um, You know, if you're lucky enough to get a booth, like it's really roomy and you can fit like five people in it and it's so cozy. If you have kids, it's great. I used to nurse Krishna in that booth in the winter without anybody noticing. I'm dead serious. I take off my coat and just put it on my lap and then I would lay her down and, you know, just nurse her. I would just like lower my sweater and nobody would be wiser. And it's so loud in there so like it's a great place to go if you're nursing
0: <laughs> it's a great place to go if you're nursing guys that's the best review of baltazar you've ever heard <laughs> uh padma thank you so so much uh tell everyone where i mean everyone knows where they can find you but if there's anything else that you want to plug taste the nation is on hulu you guys have to watch this show it's so wonderfully bingeable and i really think like i just interviewed phil rosenthal and i told him the same thing i think you two are both doing what Bourdain did without being Bourdain because the thing that Bourdain did was he was so authentically himself and that's why he was Bourdain and you come across so genuinely yourself and you're such a great listener and a great absorber of information and you're great at getting people to talk about their cultures and it's just a fucking joy to watch.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. If people want to find me, they can find me on my Twitter or IG at Lakshmi, or they can just watch Hulu or Top Chef.
0: I love it. Thank you, Padma. This episode of Green Eggs and Dan was produced by Andrew Stephen. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. The theme music is Beautiful Food by Idan. And interstitial music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.